Now, the last few weeks uh, of this series, we've been talking about some of the, the central truths in Scripture about God, about who God is and what His character is. Now, what are those? Let's, let me review those for a minute. What are those? And, and why we've been talking about those as part of this series on the mission of the church. Well, there's four, and the fourth one's going to be today. The first one was this, uh, God is great. God is great. God is in control. And because God is in control, that means I don't have to be. Okay. Uh, the second one we looked at was uh, God is glorious and awesome and holy. Uh, and, and that should lead, rightly understood, that should lead to a fear of the Lord in my life. And if I fear the Lord, I don't have to fear other people. So God is in control. Uh, God is great. Fear of the Lord. And then last week, we looked at the truth that God is good. God is good. And if God is good, I can come to God and drink deeply and find satisfaction in Him instead of feeling like I've constantly got to run to other places and other things to find satisfaction. And today, we're going to look at God's grace. God is gracious and how that impacts our lives. Now, why have we looked at all those on the tail end of this series uh, on the mission of the church. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about over the course of this series uh, is, is our need to do life as believers and to do mission uh, within the context of community. Uh, that we do this as the body of Christ, not simply as solitary, scattered individuals. And one of the things that we've talked about that we need to do as a community with one another is to pastor one another. That is not just the job of your pastor and your associate pastor. It's all of our jobs to actually pastor one another in Christ, pointing one another to Christ. What does that look like? How do we do that? One of the ways we do that is by pointing each other to these four big truths about God. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. Uh, Tim Chester calls these four liberating truths uh, because as we point one another to these truths, they have the power to actually free us uh, from the sin that often enslaves us. Listen to what he says. Most of our sinful behavior and negative emotions arise because we're not believing one of these four truths as we should. Right? I think well, that's a pretty, pretty big statement. Most of our sinful behavior and negative emotion arises from the fact that we're not believing one of these four amazing things about God. When we don't have these things right about God in our heads, then it leads to a lot of sinful behavior and negative emotions in our lives. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. So these are these truths that we speak into one another's lives as we pastor one another in the church. And one of the reasons that they're liberating is that they have this way of, of revealing our heart's idols. Uh, the things that we are really uh, looking to instead of God. They reveal our heart's idols, but as we think about these, they also reveal the idols of the people that we're rubbing shoulders with every day. The people that we're thinking about, all right, how do I take the gospel into Spartanburg? So let me put it like this to try to put some hands and feet on this. When you're having a conversation with somebody and you're trying to figure out 
okay, what's going on in their life, and how do I point this person to Jesus Christ? All right, whether they're a believer who simply needs some to be reminded, or whether they're an unbeliever and you're trying to just figure out, man, they need the gospel. How do I point them? What do I point them to? Ask yourselves in that conversation, as as you're asking them questions, which one of these four big truths about God are they failing to believe? All right, where's, put it like this, where's the unbelief in their life? Because that's what it comes down to, is, is our unbelief. Where's the unbelief in their life? And let me give you this example from from everyday church. Uh, He says, think about somebody. Here's our case study. Think about somebody who's busy, stressed, and worn out. Now, now think about how failing to believe one of these four truths about God is at the root of their uh, behavior and and their troubles. All right, here, here you go. They might be too busy because they are insecure and they need to control life. All right, you ever get like that? The reason you're doing so much is that you're not trusting that God is great and that He is in control, but you're actually trying to grasp control and trying to make sure everything works. You're taking that all on yourself. You might be too busy because you fear other people and you can't ever say no when they ask you to do something. Okay? Anybody ever struggle with that? They ask you, you, you say, sure, sure, I, I can do that. You, you dread disappointing somebody else. Okay? You fear people Instead of fearing the Lord, you're failing to believe that God is glorious and, and His opinion is the one that matters. It might be that you're too busy and you're stressed out because you're filling your life uh, with activities, with stuff, in this desperate attempt to somehow find satisfaction somewhere. Instead of believing that God is good and He is the one that I need to know. He is the true source of joy. Not all these things that I do trying to somewhere find a taste of happiness. They may be too busy because they're trying to prove themselves through their work when God is gracious and justifies us freely through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I've got to prove to everybody that I'm okay, that I matter, that I'm acceptable, that I can get the job done instead of resting in the grace of God. They're failing to believe that God is gracious. So I wanted to kind of pull all those together for you because we've been talking about those over the last few weeks. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And today, God is gracious. So let's uh, look to the scriptures. Titus chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, 
These things are excellent and profitable for people. You pray for us. Uh, Father, as we look at this text today, we look at it knowing that it's not simply a man's word, but it is is your very word that you speak to us in it and through it. And uh, you speak to us as it's preached properly. So, Father, I pray that you would help me to correctly handle the word of truth. Uh, Father, I pray that you would speak through me, uh, that you would speak over and above and beyond my ability, and even against me if necessary. But, Father, speak to your people through your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you who are country music fans probably know that George Jones, you know who George Jones is? Okay. Uh, old country music singer. Passed, he's, he's, he's one of the legends of country music, really. And he passed away during the last couple of weeks. He was known for his music, but he was also probably as much known for the addictions that he wrestled with during his life. After George Jones passed away, one of his good friends was another country music singer, Merle Haggard. Um, and I could do some Merle Haggard if you like, <laughs> or not. Um, but this is what Merle Haggard said about George Jones. I'd get mad at him over the years because of his self-damage, but everything I said to him was out of love. Imagine you're George Jones, and every night you're expected to sing as good as you did on a song like She Thinks I Still Care. He was a shy country boy from East Texas walking around with that on his shoulders. He knew people expected him to be the greatest country singer that ever lived. He was the Babe Ruth of country music, and people expected a home run every time. He was the Babe Ruth of country music, and people expected a home run every time. Now, I don't know that any of us feel that kind of pressure, uh, that we feel like we're the Babe Ruth of our careers or whatever, but I bet there's at least one area in each of our lives, maybe multiple areas, where you battle this idea of trying to, to live up to other people's expectations of you. Areas where you feel like that you have got to perform. And even areas where you feel like you've got to perform and you're not performing. We, we really live in a, in a hyper-competitive society. Right? We was talking to somebody about college admission stuff just the other day. Uh, we want to make sure our kids are getting the the best grade so they can get in the right program at the right school and get the, the right job and the best job because that, of course, leads to the best life, right? Maybe. Uh, even in church, uh, that can be one more place where we feel like, oh, I've got, I've, I've got to do my best and I'm not doing my best. I've got to be really sold out for Jesus and really committed and really doing gospel neighboring and, 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 and really loving all these people around me. And it just feels like one more burden, one more place where I'm not performing. Uh, our, our, our value uh, at times in our eyes all hinges on our own performance. It can feel like that uh, at, at home. It can feel like that uh, in the workplace. And sometimes it can even feel like that at church. But then there's this message that actually is what the church is supposed to be all about. Uh, there's this message called the gospel. Uh, the central message of the entire Bible. This message that says you can't perform well enough to be accepted by God. You can't study harder, work longer, uh, volunteer at enough nonprofits 
you can't do enough to be accepted by God. The Gospel that says, you can't save yourself. He saves us. He saves us. Those are, I really think, three life-changing words that are at the very heart of this text that we read this morning that we constantly need to be reminded of. We don't save ourselves. He saves us. If you get those words, and if you take those words inside of you and meditate on, on those words, they really do have the power to change your life. This gospel message, He saves us will change how you think about God, it will change how you think about other people, and it will even change how you think about yourself. So let's flesh that out this morning. He saves us. Uh, Three points. We need salvation. We can't save ourselves. He saves us. This is just just the basics of the gospel. We need salvation. We can't save ourselves. He saves us. First of all, we need salvation. Let me talk about that word for a minute, all right? Because that's a that's a churchy word, all right? We we throw that word uh, around a lot. Uh, this idea of salvation or, or being saved. You know, there are a lot of people out there who are fine with a church that talks about morality, doing good deeds, serving the poor, um, uh, doing justice, helping the oppressed. Those those kind of things. But when you start talking about salvation, or our need to be saved, uh, often people, how do people react to that? Sometimes they kind of laugh at that, uh, or they become standoffish when you talk about that, or, or suddenly they're not interested in the conversation any longer. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, getting saved, all right, that, that has a lot of cultural baggage probably. It sounds too religious. It sounds like somebody who's too into this religious stuff. It sounds like some of those fringe people. Or maybe you know somebody who supposedly got saved and you know their life's no different than it ever was before. And so it, it, it just is kind of this empty, uh, hypocritical even, category in your mind. Or maybe the idea that you might need saving uh, is just plain out offensive to you. Why, why would I need saving? What do I, need, what do I actually need saving from? So what is salvation? What does, that, what does that even mean? When the Bible talks about salvation, when you read things like, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, what does that mean? To be saved in, in the scriptural sense is to be rescued, to be saved, to be rescued, both from the penalty that we deserve for, for sin, for our sins, and from the very power of sin itself. Uh, The Bible sees sin, and what's sin? Sin is this breaking of God's law. The Bible sees sin not just as these individual acts that we commit, but as this condition that we are all infected by. It's this condition of our very beings. We commit individual sins, individual misdeeds. We do the wrong thing because it's who we are, because of our sinful condition, the underlying disease of our soul. Think about it like this. If you've got cancer in one of your legs and you start walking with a limp suddenly and you start to feel pain, the pain and the limp aren't the actual disease. The the pain and the limp are symptoms of the underlying disease, the underlying cause that needs to be addressed, which is the cancer that you have. 
The Bible says we suffer both from the symptoms, the individual deeds, but there's an underlying cause there. There's an underlying cancer there. There's an underlying disease that separates us from God. Our sin, our breaking of God's law, leaves us separated from Him. Leaves us liable to His judgment because in order to remain faithful to who He is as a just and righteous judge, He must judge and punish sin. Where's, you're like, all right, that's, that's okay. Where's the salvation coming? Uh, where's salvation in all of that? Salvation is when God comes to the rescue, when God breaks in, when God saves us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins by taking that punishment for us. Salvation is also when God saves us from the power of sin in our lives by coming in and changing us from within, regenerating us, renewing us, so that instead of uh, living to serve ourselves, we begin to live to serve Him. Now, we need to understand at the outset that the Bible says that we all are in need of this. That we all are in need of salvation. We all need to be saved. And there's a lot of places you could go to, to see that. Uh, places like Romans 3, verse uh, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or, or Romans 3, verse 10, uh, No one is righteous, no, not one. You see it here in our text in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul is saying we ourselves were once like this. You see it in places like Isaiah chapter 64, where we're reminded that our, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Now, Paul sees himself in this list. From the most holy to the least holy, we're all in need of salvation. Um, think of the Titanic, right? You know, the Titanic hit the iceberg and went down. When that ship hit that iceberg and it was going down in the middle of the ocean, was there anybody on that ship who didn't need to be rescued? Was there anybody on that ship, on that boat, who was going to, to swim back to shore on their own power? No, everybody was in the same boat, so to speak. It didn't matter if you were a preacher or a convict. It didn't matter if you were a banker or an old tycoon or if you were just some homeless person who had stowed away to make the trip. At that point, you all needed rescue. You all needed salvation. The Bible says that everybody in the human race is in need of rescue, in need of salvation, every one of us. Now, if you're here and you're, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, or if you're here and you're simply investigating Christianity, what, what I'm saying here is that um, we all need salvation. That includes me, and that includes you as well. And that perhaps is offensive to you. That may be kind of one of the things where you say, that's kind of in my face. I, I don't know that I really need that. But think about it like this. Um, Think about it as you go to the doctor for your annual checkup and you feel fine, you feel great, and the doctor says, you know, I'm, I really think you're suffering from an underlying condition here and it's pretty serious and you need to get this checked on. You need to begin treatment for this immediately. And you say, oh, doc, nothing's wrong with me. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. You've got to show me the blood work. You've got to show me an x-ray. I'm not just taking your word for it. And the doctor says, okay, let's go do an x-ray. He does an x-ray, he brings it back, and he shows you 
what's really going on. All right, think of this moment right now as your checkup from the doctor where you're hearing some bad news, but you may be going, well, I'm not sure if I really believe that. Well, go home and x-ray it. Go home and, and, and take the Word of God and compare your life to what you see in the Word of God. Look at passages like Philippians 3, where Paul, one of the most religious people in the Bible, sees that all of his righteousness is really worthless. Uh, look at passages like Matthew 22, where we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Look at the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, look at the Sermon on the Mount, which shows us that it's not just uh, the external actions that matter in God's eyes, but it's our heart. And our heart can be a very wrong thing before God. Ask yourself, do I really? Do I really do what the Word of God says? Do I really perform these deeds? Do I really do them for the right reasons? Do I really love God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength? Do I really love the people around me as I love myself? We all need salvation. We all need salvation. Secondly, though, we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. When we hear this news about our spiritual condition before God, our first move is, is often to deny. All right? It's not, how it, 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 that's just a preacher talking. It's, it's just for effect. It's not really that bad. So the first thing we do is to deny. The second thing we do, though, that we might do is to try to, to do something about it ourselves. You know, you may sit here and you think about this and go, well, you know, there's some truth to that. I'm not the person I should be. And there really are some areas in my life that need some work. And so what we do is we resolve to do better. Um, I, I, you know, I may, I may try some religious exercises. Um, start praying more. Maybe start attending uh, church services somewhere. Work, work on my language. I need to work on my language somewhat. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not as good as I thought. I get that. All right? Uh, and I need to improve on that. I need some moral improvement. So I think I'll work on that. But not only does the Bible tell us that we need salvation, it tells us we can't save ourselves. Look at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us. It's not about our good works. It's not about even our religious works. It's about God's mercy. He saved us. Uh, several years ago, I was coaching a, a youth uh, baseball league, and, and we really didn't have a very good team. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we won a game all that year, did we? No, we, we didn't win a game all year. Will blames it on the coach. Um, <laughs> But the season was wrapping up, and one of the other coaches called me and said, do you have anybody you want to nominate for the All-Star team? And I was thinking, well, we haven't won a game all year. Um, I know I'm not going to nominate the coach. Um, who can I nominate? And we really, honestly, we didn't have anybody that was All-Star quality. But we had about four or five guys that were, that were good. They were decent ball players. And I was sitting there trying to, I was like, well, I can't just pick one. And they almost all were coaches' kids, too. So you're like, well, I can't just... So I wound up nominating five people from the worst team in the league for the All-Star team. And I called the other coach, and he said, okay. 
Um, I nominated all five people. None of them made the team. They didn't pick anyone from our team. Right? At that moment, what I was looking for from him was just a little bit of mercy. All right? just, just throw me a bone. One guy, maybe two on the team, but he was going by merit and not by mercy. Y'all, if, if God goes by merit and not by mercy, then none of us are making it. Then, then, then we're all in for, for, for a world of hurt. None of us have a chance. But we, we, we hear that, but we, we persist in this thinking that I can do this. There's something I need to do. There's some way I need to reform myself. There's some way I can make myself acceptable to Him so I don't have to rely so much on mercy. So I don't have to rely so much on Jesus. Surely, surely there's something about me that I can contribute to this. Uh, you've probably heard the names before of, of John and Charles Wesley, uh, the founders of the Methodist Church. Uh, the, the Wesleys were actually ordained Anglican clergy, but when they were students at Oxford, uh, that's when they picked up the name Methodist. You know why they picked up this name? They picked it up because they were so methodical about their Christianity, about reading the Bible several times a day and praying several times a day and visiting people in prison and giving money away. I mean, they were, they were rules. We were doing dun, dun, dun. And they did it. They were methodical about their Christianity. Uh, John Wesley later even went to, to Georgia when it was still a colony. It's a pretty rough place then. Uh, he went there as a missionary. When he came back, it was around 1738, both John and Charles had this sense that their religious life was nothing but going through the motions. That, that it was just a bunch of to-do lists. Uh, even though they were known as spiritual giants, even though they had they'd gone and been missionaries, there was no real joy in their hearts. There was no real power. There was no real sense of, of the Spirit's presence. There was no real sense that they were being changed from within. Uh, Charles Wesley had a friend who was a painter, and, and this guy's name was, was William Holland. Uh, and together they started reading Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. Uh, and, and they're reading the preface to the book of Galatians. And as they're reading, something happens to William Holland. Uh, and this is how Charles Wesley describes what happened to William Holland. This is what he says. My friend, in hearing him, and hearing Luther read, was so affected as to breathe out sighs and groans unutterable. All right, so that's, that's Charles Wesley describing what he sees happening to William Holland. Now, listen to how William Holland describes what happened. Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud. At the words, what? Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing but only accept of him who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. Right, he's a painter, a little more poetic. But, it, but this is this dramatic experience that he's just had, this, this understanding that he's come to. He's actually converted here as the preface to Galatians is being read. What happened? 
he got what Paul was talking about here in verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. He saved us. And this finally dawns on William Holland and starts to affect his life. Well, what do you do when something like that happens? Well, William Holland decided to go around and start reading the preface to Galatians to everybody. All right, they didn't have Facebook or Twitter, so I guess they sat around and read Luther commentaries a lot. But, but so, so he decides to just gather everybody up and he's like, look, you got to listen to this. Now, evidently the Wesleys were along with this, and eventually Charles Wesley's converted as well. He realizes, I, I was never a believer. And he's converted. And, and John is the, is the last to go, so to speak, but he finally is converted as well. Listen, though, to what he wrote the day before he's converted. This is, this is, you can just see he's right on the verge of it. He's starting to get it. This is what he writes. writes I resolve that I need to seek this faith by, number one, in my absolutely renouncing all dependence on my own works or righteousness, on which I really have grounded my hope of salvation from my youth. Two, in my using all the means of grace and prayer for a full reliance and trust in Him as my Christ. Can you see him starting to get it? Do you see He's always had faith. He's always been a man of faith. He would always have even said that he was a Christian. But he had always had faith in himself. His faith had never really been directed at Christ. It had always been directed at himself. He says, I grounded my hope for my salvation in my righteousness. And he knew something was wrong, but he always thought, I just need more faith. I just, I just got to have more faith. Are you ever there? I just, I just really need to grow and I need to have more faith. And what he was beginning to realize was that he didn't need more faith. He needed his faith to be in the right object. He needed his faith to actually be not in John Wesley, but to be in Jesus Christ. He saves us. Uh, the next day, Wesley is listening to Luther being read it aloud again. I don't know how many times he heard this. Um, but, he's, but he's listening to this again, and this is what he writes. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. We can't save ourselves. He saves us. That, that's a message uh, that not only does the person who says they are not religious needs to hear, but you also who are religious need to hear this message as well. You who grew up in the church, who grew up doing the Christian thing, need to hear this message as John Wesley and Charles Wesley heard it. And yet they were living with no power in their life. They were just going through the motions. We've got to hear this message that He saves us. It also speaks to us, though, who feel like we never measure up. We're never good enough. We're always giving ourselves a performance review. And we're always failing every time we review our own performance. He saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness. Not because of our works done in righteousness, but by His mercy. Put that verse on your mirror. 
look at that in the morning. Uh, you know, instead of trying to, oh, I'm, I'm going to do great things today, just put on your mirror. He saved us. He saved me. It wasn't what I've done. It's not what I'm going to accomplish for God. It's what God has accomplished for me on my behalf. And let me suggest that getting that, He saved us, will change everything about the way you look at life. Let me just suggest two ways here. Two ways this this message that God is gracious will, will change you. Uh, the first one is that when we get this, we'll stop treating people based on their performance and we'll start treating them based on God's mercy to us. We'll stop treating other people based on their performance and we're, we'll start treating them based on how God has been merciful to us. That's the point Paul's making to Titus uh, in the first three verses here. Uh, Titus Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Why? For we ourselves were all of these things. We're foolish, disobedient, led astray. But He saved us. He saved us. Titus, remind your people then they need to be submissive to the governing authorities. And, and these are people who are living on the island of Crete, and we think that they were, they were contemplating some revolt against the, the Roman authorities. They were getting all caught up in, in the tensions of the day. And Paul reminds them they need to be civil. They need to be courteous. They need to be submissive. Um, and I, this could, could, could turn to an interesting conversation. It's not the, the, the focus of the sermon. But I really think... If, if you are an American Christian you're going to speak into politics, you ought to meditate on this verse a long time before you say anything. How am I, it's not saying you have to agree with everything, but how am I speaking toward those who God has put in authority over me? Think about that before you get ready to vent. So Paul is saying, treat the authorities well. Treat, and he kind of bronzes it out, treat everybody well. Why, Paul? Why in the world would I do that? Can't you see what they're like? Can't you see the way they govern? Can't you see the, the, the way these other people treat us? And Paul says, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen what they're like. And you used to be like that. And your pastor, Titus, used to be like that. And I used to be like that. God didn't save us because we were so great. God didn't save us because of our works, because of our righteousness. He didn't save us because we understood how economics and and taxation ought to work. He saved us because of His mercy. He was merciful to us. Now you go and you be merciful as well. See, when when you get the Gospel, when you get the Gospel, you'll begin to quit grading people based on their performance. You know, we look at people and we say, okay, they act like this, and this is going to determine how I treat them. Paul says, as you get the gospel, you'll begin to treat people based on God's mercy to you. The gospel makes us merciful people. Now, secondly, when we get this, um, we will also quit trying to perform for ourselves and for everybody around us 
we'll be able to, to stop trying to prove that we're okay and we'll instead be able to rest in our justification that is by grace and not through any effort of our own. We'll be able to rest in the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ, the covering that comes from Jesus Christ. We'll be able to see my righteousness doesn't come in my performance, in my ability to accumulate wealth, in my ability to to attract friends, in the type of car I drive or the home I live in, or any of these things. My righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. Uh, There's an episode of The Office from the second season, and it's actually called Performance Review. Performance review. And it's the day where everybody in the office has to come in for their performance review. They have to come in and see Michael, who's the boss. But it's also the day that Michael has to meet with his boss, Jan, for his performance review. And they've actually been involved in a romantic relationship that he wants to keep going and she's ready to be done with. All right, so that's the scene. Michael's got everybody coming in to meet him. He's got Jan coming in to review his performance. And it's interesting to see how people assess themselves as they head in to go into this performance review. Uh, Angela, on her way in, says, well, you know, I did compete in a lot of beauty pageants when I was a child. Uh, I'm kind of used to having my performance reviewed. In fact, I hold up pretty well under scrutiny. Uh, And so she's completely um, at ease, even arrogant, and she's critical of the people around her. Dwight, he acts very confident as he gets ready to go into his performance review, but he's always trying to prove to everybody that he really is competent. He's always trying to prove to himself that he really is worthy. And then there's Michael. Uh, there's Michael. Jan finally tells him, look, I don't, I don't want to have a relationship with you. And he keeps, why, why, why? Uh, why don't you have a relationship with me? And finally she just breaks down and says, uh, she says to them, because you're obnoxious and rude and stupid and inconsiderate. Which is all of those things. But then as she's telling him that, she starts feeling bad about that. And she says, Michael, you're a good person. I'm just not ready for a relationship right now. It's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. And that's all he hears. All right? He doesn't hear any of the legitimate criticism. He just hears, oh, I'm a basically good person. And she's just not ready for this right now. We can see some of ourselves in, in, in all of these characters, can't we, at times? Uh, some of us are self-confident And we feel really good about ourselves. Well, at the same time, it's really easy to be critical of all the people around us who can't seem to get uh, their junk together. Uh, Others of us put on this air of having it all together. We want everybody to think we have it all together while really secretly we're horribly insecure and we desperately need other people's reaffirmations and we desperately need to prove ourselves. And some of us can't hear the truth about ourselves. We can't hear the criticism. We just want to be told that we're okay. That we're good people. When you get this message, when you get the gospel, He saved you. When that starts getting down into your soul, you'll stop reviewing everybody else's performance. And you won't be as obsessed with your own performance either. You'll you'll, you'll stop the navel-gazing and the constant, I'm not good enough. And you'll be, you'll be able, actually, to hear criticism when it comes without falling apart. 
Because you know that you don't save yourself. He saved us. You'll be able to stop all the performance reviews. And you'll be able to rest simply in the good news that He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but because of His mercy, according to His mercy. You'll be able to rest in that. And as you rest in that and get that, that will become such good news to you that you want to, not you feel like you have to, but you'll be like uh, Holland and you'll want to go out and read Martin Luther's Prophecy. Maybe not read Martin Luther. But you'll want to go out and see other people experience the freedom and the grace of the gospel as well because you realize you saved us. Let's pray. Father, it's the, it's, it's the meat and potatoes of what we're all about. Um, it's the simple goodness and truth of the gospel. Father, may this message never be uh, tiring to us, our old hat, uh, or something we feel like we learned way back at the beginning of the Christian life and has nothing to do with us now. But may this be the message that animates us every day. You saved us. May that be the message that changes us. We praise, we, we praise you. We make these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.